And welcome back to Panic Mode, the podcast for gamers and game designers with your hosts who are not afraid to pick Farah against Soldier, Aiden and Shelby. Well, that that depends on the soldier. I guess that's true. Like you know, the skin that you're wearing? No, it's like every time I play Farah and the team counterpicks and switches to Soldier, I'm pretty sure it's always just someone from the Overwatch League. Like, it's oh, just I see. Like yeah, insane yeah. accuracy. It's just not a good time. That is the time I am very afraid to pick Farah against Soldier. <laughs> Understandably so. <laughs> All right, so what are we talking about today, shall we? We're going to talk about some metagame, both uh, balanced and unbalanced. I feel like this is a term that has come up before. It has. We actually talked about it a little bit in our episode on collectible card games. So per Wikipedia, a metagame is any approach to a game that transcends or operates outside of the prescribed rules of the game, uses external factors to affect the game, or goes beyond the supposed limits or environment set by the game, which just leave it to the Wikipedia nerds to just overphrase everything. What does it really mean, Aiden? It's an aspect of a game that exists outside the game itself. Okay, can you give me some examples? This is so, a kind of a weird term. <laughs> I'm, gonna, I'm just going to straight up recycle the example I used in the metagaming episode for collectible card games, where imagine you're going to a rock, paper, scissors tournament. And the nice. nature of this tournament was everyone had to lock in what what uh, which of the rock, paper, scissors they were going to do before the tournament started. So if you picked rock, you had to do rock for the entire tournament. So naturally, let's say 50% of the players pick rock. Well, all of a sudden, it is fantastic to pick paper because paper will just beat half of the other players. So in that case, you've created a metagame that is very favorable to paper and not so good for rock. So is that a balanced metagame or an unbalanced metagame? Well, this is where, it gets, this is where things get tricky. Is you, get, you hear words like that thrown, a lot, thrown around a lot when talking about designing for metagames. And in that case, it wouldn't be a balanced metagame. But the question is, is like, as designers, we're thinking, like, why did everyone pick rock? Is that, like, why would you pick that? It's like <laughs> the episode of The Simpsons where Bart and Lee started playing rock, paper, scissors, and she just, and Bart's just like, man, rock beats everything. Good old rock. And then Lisa just goes paper, and he's like, don't. <laughs> <laughs> Too bad. <laughs> and going back to what we said in the opening joke, it's like, if Fair is a really dominant character in Overwatch, that's going to increase the prevalence of hitscan characters like Soldier 76 and McCree, that they're able to effectively counter Farrah, and all of a sudden the meta has shifted in a new way. Interesting. Okay, so basically, you're, it's not just about meta, it's about having a balanced metagame where there are at least two strategies that can equally face off against one another. There isn't one that's dominating everything. There's got to be like a, a multitude of them. Yeah, so I guess what we're talking about is mostly prevalent in multiplayer games. That metagames can exist in like single player focused games where it's like, in the sense that you want to min-max and make the best possible character, there might be meta builds. Like, for instance, in the Dark Souls games, typically the magic builds are a bit better than just the straight combat builds. And that was, those would be considered the more meta builds. But there's a lot less focus thrown at those because the game isn't quite as hard as any given multiplayer game would be. Yeah, I wonder too, if, is metagame linked to like the state of flow at all that you experience when playing a game? Like, especially a single, a single player game, right? Because it keeps you in that state of flow where the game isn't too hard or too yeah. easy yeah like, a, like like the dark souls games that they're kind of expecting you to maybe not have meta builds but have like respectable builds otherwise you will not be able to progress through the game yeah uh, but i guess that's not meta anymore that's just the game <laughs> yeah it's tricky so anyway let, let's focus on the multiplayer aspect of it for now and we're going to go into this article that was written by Juist van Dagen, who is a programmer and musician who's worked on games like Awesome Knots and Swords and Soldiers. And we've linked both his contact info and the article he wrote in the show notes. 
So he had five realizations when it came to designing for metagames. That one, overpowered is worse than underpowered. We'll get to what, we'll get to what that means in a minute. Variety always adds imbalance. Competitive players often dislike randomness and luck. Man, that sounds familiar. <laughs> and balance automatically comes worse over time. And finally, perfect, in quotations, balance is impossible. Interesting. So let's get into that first one. We'll cover all five. So the first one was overpowered is worse than underpowered. What do you uh, what do you have to say to that, Eden? All right. So hypothetically, let's say you were designing a fighting game and it's unbalanced. That some of the characters are almost strictly better than the other ones. So in the next patch, do you choose to buff the weak characters or nerf the strong ones? What is your instinct? Well, first, I'm interested by the idea of a patch. So back in the old days, there were no patches for games. It came out and you had to play it. So I guess my counter question is, how, is a metagame a new thing or has it been around forever? Like, I feel like part of the metagame is developers responding to it. Is that true? Oh, absolutely. That like, if you look at a game like Super Smash Bros. Brawl, it was it was terribly balanced. Meta Knight just trounced everyone. And since this was an era where games didn't really receive big patches, there was nothing they could do. And Meta Knight is still, to this day, just the best character in Super Smash Bros. Brawl. Brawl. Oh, is that the one on the Wii? Yeah, that's the one on the yeah. Wii. Oh, yeah. Yep, I remember that. Good times. <laughs> okay, anyway, back to your question. I guess in terms of buffing or nerfing strong characters... Um, at least the Van Dongen argues that overpowered things have greater impact than underpowered ones, right? So it would be better to nerf your character instead of buff them. And I guess that's the idea that like, if something's overpowered, um, it's just everywhere. Like it's so easy to, to see it and to hate it. Um, so it seems like there's a lot more sparks if you buff something, Versus nerfing it, which is maybe a little bit more subtle. I don't know. I guess it depends if that character is your main or not. You're probably going to notice it either way. <laughs> like, I suspect, like, I can understand why this is the approach most developers take, where it's just nerf everything, as opposed to buffing the weak stuff. Because let's say you have one character that's really dominant in a fighting game, and you're like, you know what, let's buff everyone else. And then all you've done is create three dominant characters. It's like, it's a little bit better, but you're still just kind of like, pouring gasoline to try to put out a fire in some ways like it's it's unclear if this is ever going to solve the game long term yeah well i guess it's just kind of you have to mix them a little bit right like it's yeah. when it's knowing when to buff somebody when to nerf somebody i don't know like and buffing is um making a character better and nerfing is making them slightly worse <laughs> but whether you're bringing them up or down i guess it's just whether that makes sense and I think it just takes a lot of testing. I don't know. I've never really had to contend with having to buff or nerf anything in a game before. Um, and I really don't know how you would go about figuring that out, to be honest. I remember this was something I learned a lot about while I was studying Gwent and how Gwent was approaching its nerfs and buffs, where it was a very like math-based game. So if you ever wanted to just increase a card, you would just increase its value by one. Or if you wanted to nerf it, you would decrease its value by one. Interesting. And they were just very active in how they approached nerfing and buffing things that these cards were getting changed all the bloody time. And then when they kind of finally revamped the game a couple of years ago, it just all felt like it had been nerfed into the ground and everything felt kind of weak. And I was just left here feeling like, 
it just doesn't feel the same anymore. I don't feel powerful in the things that I'm doing just because I knew what it once was like. So I think that is like one of the times there is merit to trying a more buff heavy approach as opposed to a nerf heavy approach. Yeah. And I mean, buffing things is always seems like the, uh, the more fun approach. It's always more fun to play overpowered characters than underpowered. Yeah. So I think really it's just about finding the balance and tweaking until you find the balance. And you know, that's our favorite thing is play testing. <laughs> so don't be afraid to just crunch some numbers and, and try a couple different things before you really find that sweet spot. No, exactly. All right. On to the next. So, so this is a point number two. Variety always adds imbalance. Do you agree with this statement, Shelby? Uh, yeah, that seems pretty correct. <laughs> yeah, so I would say so. I think you have everything balanced and then you throw something random into the mix. Yeah, that's going to mess some stuff up, I bet. <laughs> so Van Dongen argues that this is the case, that if you made a game that was just perfectly, symmet perfectly symmetrical, like the maps were always all symmetrical, every player spawned with the same stuff, it would be perfectly balanced, but would also get quite boring, which we'll come back to that in a minute, but I agree with that statement on some level. He also argues that designers, we add a variety of interest or variety and complexity to our games in the interest of breaking away from that kind of stagnation, where we have asymmetric maps, different character loadouts, and different weapons and things like that. And finally, that the more variation you add to a game, the more, the more balance is thrown off and eventually just becomes impossible to fully control. So how do you add stuff to your game? Uh, I don't know. If, it, if it's 2007, you I create a class to Call of Duty 4 and the rest is history. <laughs> I guess it's the same thing. It's about if you want to add something, it's not adding too much at one time, I'm thinking. It's more about adding something, adding one thing, and then seeing how that impacts everything else, adjusting accordingly, and then adding something else. But I'm just guessing here. <laughs> well, yeah, if you look at something like Overwatch where... New heroes are introduced every three months, or they used to be until Overwatch 2 started becoming a thing. Yeah. And it would just kind of throw like a little rip. It was like throwing a rock into a pond, and there'd be ripples everywhere throughout the metagame. And some heroes were more impactful than others. <laughs> Brigida. And some heroes were less impactful, like uh, like Baptiste, who was meant to save everyone from the GOATS meta, but did not. Rip. <laughs> but yeah, I think um, Aiden made the point that symmetrical games can be lots of fun. But I kind of like, I'll admit, I don't fully understand this point because I don't think any game can be fully symmetrical because the people you're playing against will always have different skills than you and it's impossible to play against someone who's equally matched. Yeah, I suppose um, it's just the idea that like, like a game of chess is mostly symmetrical apart from white being able to play first. I don't know. Like, I guess, is it though? Because not really. Like, sure, the board is, and the pieces are symmetrical, but the people playing are what make it interesting. That's where the yeah. variety comes I from. think just Van Doggen's point is coming from the view that we're just removing the players from this, that we're just looking at a purely symmetrical game. If you play a game of just flipping a coin, it'll be quite literally balanced. Yeah. So I'm going to contest his point about variety, like making things like impossible to balance in the sense that like a game never has to be perfectly, perfectly balanced. We don't just flip coins for fun because honestly, we don't care about having our games be perfectly balanced. Mm -hmm. We just need them to be perfectly balanced enough to be fun. Yeah. Like this kind of reminds me of uh, Call of Duty Modern Warfare 2 where everything was broken. Like there was like <laughs> five gun, five guns, like the UMP, the TAR and the ACR that just trounced everything else. But among those five guns, it was balanced. Like the, each gun kind of had a role in a niche and it worked. Even if that left meaning like 80 other weapons neglected, <laughs> that was still there for the casual players who wanted some more variety in their lives. But for the purely competitive players, there was actually a little balanced metagame going on. Way to go. 
Modern Warfare 2. <laughs> All right. Number three, competitive players often dislike randomness and luck. This sounds very familiar to uh, the, the first episode we ever yep. did. Roll the clip. If you have less luck and you let the skilled players win more and just kind of let the but players with, who are really talented at the game have high MMRs float to the top, you're going to develop a really hardcore player base. We're just trying to push their skills to the limit because they can. They're not going to get bogged down by losing the worst players by virtue of luck. And on the same note, luckier games will be more accessible and kind of create a more casual crowd. and let more players enjoy it, but at the same time, it's going to frustrate the more skilled players because they're going to lose to the worst players because they got unlucky. And as often as you'd like to appease both crowds, not every game can be Guitar Hero and have a low floor and a high ceiling, especially competitive ones. It's true. Well, I don't remember the episode quality being so bad. So basically... Ben Doggin here is arguing that randomness is exciting. Uh, this is why casinos exist. We all we all know. <laughs> You're telling me that um, Baccarat is not an interesting game unto itself? I'm so sorry, Aiden. Basically, <laughs> randomness gives a player uh, who's maybe not so great at the game a little bit of a chance to beat a player who is very good at the game, right? It kind of makes us feel like we're all on equal footing. We all know Mario Kart is such a great example of this. <laughs> um, but also, much like Mario Kart, it can leave a really good player quite frustrated, right? If they if they keep losing to a person that they clearly outplayed. So it's sort of a balancing act for this as well. And a lot of it too is asking yourself what kind of game you want to make in the audience that you're trying to appeal to. So I think, you know, this is, this is fully correct basically, right? That uh, if you're in a competitive scene, you're going to want your skill level to match the results that you're seeing. So randomness and luck probably aren't going to factor too well into... Uh, into competitive play, but of course they can belong in other places, right? It's not uh, it's not one or the other. One isn't better than the other. Um, it's only better than the other depending on your audience and, and who you're designing for. So, but the the observation that competitive players dislike luck and randomness is yeah, it's pretty clear. <laughs> All right, so moving on, number four, balance automatically becomes worse over time. What do you make of this one? Do you agree? Yeah, I think um, this is something that the author points out as well, but as you play a game, people are going to figure out how to exploit the living hell out of it. <laughs> they're going to, they're going to find perfect strategies or at least close to perfect strategies and, and figure out how to, you know, break yeah. the game, be better at the game all the time. So this idea of balancing something and then, you know, waiting and seeing what happens. Yeah. I think it's going to become a little more unbalanced because there's always going to be things that you can't account for, especially in the, uh, this age right now of being able to add things to your game and add patches and, and new content and fix things. Um, after releasing the game, there's a lot of room for improvement and a lot of room for people to, to find things that perhaps you, you never even thought of. So it's, it's kind of cool at the same time, but also something to keep in mind. There's one example that I just absolutely love that in uh, Super Smash Bros. Melee, Yoshi was kind of considered like a mid-tier character for most of the game's lifespan. But then in 2016, there was a, a Smash play, a Melee player by the name of AMSA who just crushed with it in one tournament. And all of a sudden, Yoshi was brought more up into the high-tier range. And this was 15 years after the game's launch. <laughs> a game that was extensively played and received no patches all of a sudden had to change to its metagame. So yeah, things can change over time. A game that is out for five minutes will have a game will have a different metagame than when the game's been out for two days or ten weeks or ten years. And of course that depends on the game. But as players get better and learn new tricks, yeah, the balance does kind of start to become at risk. Alright, so what was Van Doggen's full argument here? So uh, yeah, even if a game isn't a good place right now, it won't be as time goes on, and that can even just be a very slight imbalance. That's kind of given from the fact that if one character in the fighting game is just slightly better than the others, 
well, then over time, players are going to stop trying to figure out how to beat that character and just join the problem. So these are the kind of things that will just change over the course of months or years of a game's lifespan. And although there is some room for things to shift around a bit on their own if weaker strategies have to be good against dominant ones, for instance, that going back to the rock, paper, scissors example, if I think that everyone at this tournament is going to sign up and play paper this weekend, I'm going to play scissors. But if everyone thinks that I'm going to think that, they're all going to play rock. And it goes around in circles like that because you haven't reached a Nash equilibrium, which Nash equilibrium is a mathematical term that essentially says that every party has reached its optimal position based on what all the other parties are doing. A commonly cited example is, let's say there are two competitors who are selling the same price that I'm selling my fighting game for 10 bucks and you're selling your fighting game for 10 bucks. Maybe it's like 1980 or something. I don't know why these games <laughs> sure. are so cheap. And I decide to undercut you and sell my game for eight bucks. Well, then you know, then I know, all I know that's going to do is make you undercut me and start selling at seven bucks. And all I've really done is cost myself my money because I'm not undercutting anyone anymore. And we were both better off just staying at $10. So in that situation, we have reached a Nash equilibrium. There is no incentive for us to change either of our behavior, oh. which when you apply that to game design, you don't want that unless there's just like 60 different perfectly balanced characters that they all just are at a standstill. And that would be interesting. But <laughs> in a bad example, if you just have... If you just have like two decks in like a Magic the Gathering metagame, that may not be as good. Sure, it's a Nash Equilibrium, but with only two decks, the game's going to get very stale. So you want players to be kind of switching up their strategies every now and again. Yeah, so Nash Equilibriums are kind of bad. And you kind of achieve that just by having a rock, paper, scissors dynamic where this beats this but doesn't beat this. So the metagame will kind of shift by its ballot by itself over time. Okay, that's cool. All right, his last point. Perfect balance is impossible. Do you agree with the statement? Yeah, fully. I think... Um... I think perfect anything is impossible, but especially in something like balance, like there's so much to account for. And especially if um, you always want the game to be changing, I don't know that it could effectively change if it was ever perfect to begin with. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like if everybody's just got it figured out the whole time, I think figuring it out too is part of the fun. So if it's just perfect and you immediately know what's going to be good... I don't know if that's ex as, as exciting as something popping in and kind of messing with everything and then being like, okay, I got to like account for this now. Yeah. Um, I think there's a little bit of intrigue in that. And probably not everybody does, but we do all have different skills and tastes. And uh, I know that's something that the author argues as well is that, you know, everybody's different. Not everybody's ever going to be happy. Um, so there, by that definition, <laughs> you there's no, no such thing as perfect balance. All right, so instead of takeaways, let's do a, a quick question of the week. We haven't done one of these in a while. So if you are following us on Twitter or social media or just can send us an email, we'd love to hear what your response is to this question because in your experience, Shelby, mm. what is a game that despite its complexity and variety is really well balanced? I think, uh, so I understand this question by way of as you continue to play the game, you're always being challenged it's never too easy. It's never too hard. You're always kind of like staying on top of it. Um, sometimes with the help from the metagame, I guess sometimes not. But for me, it was Monster Hunter World. Of course. Haha, <laughs> we can't talk about that game enough. <laughs> um, but basically, it is. It's got some complexity, some serious complexity in that game. But it does feel very well balanced in the sense that I can really kind of create any build that I want. Um, and as long as... Uh, you know, the elements aren't clashing. So let's say like super basic, this isn't even like part of the game, but like a, you know, 
one monster is rock and I'm using rock against it. Well, obviously that's not gonna do anything, right? I need to pick a paper weapon, but I can really pick any paper weapon <laughs> and uh, that'll get that'll get the job done. It may take me a little bit longer depending on which one, but I do think that for me at least, uh, it's well balanced in that sense. And Monster Hunter World 2, it's important to acknowledge, it also has a very strong metagame. There's people everywhere trying to figure out the best min-maxing of, of the, the weapons that you need. But at the same time... I hate it that every time in that game I look up a guide online, it's like, how do you build a good longsword build? And it's like, okay, here's the build. It's going to take you about 300 hours to put together. <laughs> I'm like, Jesus Christ. Uh, well, yeah, it's, uh, you could spend 300 hours or you could just uh, really build whatever longsword you think looks really cool. And I'm sure as, Hella as, slasher, long as, you, baby. <laughs> as long as you keep it leveled up and, you know, within the confines of the game, I think they uh, they do a pretty good job of letting you feel challenged no matter what, because that's a hard game. But uh, you got you to gotta fight chance you know <laughs> uh, my answer to this game is call of duty 4 which admittedly i'm giving it bonus points for like nostalgia where this game is really old and i played a lot of it but given that it was like the first one to kind of attempt this kind of creative class system it was really really well balanced and like i can tell it was like a deliberate effort from the designers with little things like if you put a grenade launcher on your gun it would say you don't get a fr you, you you have to lose one of your perks oh. that they were very aware that that was a very powerful thing and they had to kind of take a thing away from you for that <laughs> no grenades like, on your guns no very sad <laughs> yeah it's you, uh, it's called the noob tube for a reason Shelby Jesus oh man <laughs> so yeah please let us know what your answers are we'd love to know what you think and we'll talk about it next episode yeah thank you so much for listening everybody we'll see you next time bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of Panic Mode. You can reach us on social media at panicmode.net, all spelled out, or on our website, panicmode.net. We'd love to hear any comments, questions, or feedback you have about today's episode, and we'll be back next time where we'll take a look at roguelikes. We'll see you then. Bye.